Hello, this is Living with Feeling, a podcast about emotions in the 21st century. It's brought to you by the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. In this episode, historian of nursing Sarah Cheney considers the question of whether robot nurses could ever truly care. Robot technology is all around us, in our daily lives, as well as in healthcare and medicine. Some years ago, my partner had prostate surgery. When he told his mother that the operation would be performed by a robot, she was horrified. Automation, she assumed, was not a skilled procedure, but a cost-cutting exercise akin to the self-service checkouts that so frustrated her in Tesco's. She worried that the robot would be a cheap imitation of the human surgeon, stripping humanity from the medical encounter. But are feelings essential to good care? In my research into the history of nursing, I've found that attitudes towards emotions in healthcare have changed significantly. If healthcare robots are here to stay, and it seems as if they are, I think they can tell us a lot about the place of feelings in health and medicine. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea to meet some robots in person. Yeah, it makes you feel oddly hesitant to touch it. <laughs> like it's suddenly going to attack me or something. <laughs> Feels a little bit like a horror film. Dr Amelia DeFalco runs a research project on imagining post-human care at the University of Leeds. She introduced me to robots Paro and Miro at the Thackeray Museum, who meet visitors as part of the exhibition Amelia curated, Can Robots Care? Uh, OK, um, so I am now picking up the seal in a slightly nervous way. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't suddenly start chirruping. Um, it's quite heavy. Oh, it's very soft though. Oh, God. <laughs> One of the robots, Paro, is a seal-like soft creature. Sounds like it's in pain. Whose chirrups and whirs I found really quite unsettling. Why was that? Out of the atomic war came the perfect man, the humanoids, man's own creation. Within an Anglo-European context, you have a lot of <laughs> narratives of robot takeovers and apocalypse and, you know, a kind of terror associated with them. Citizens of the Earth, you will be destroyed. You see that trend, right? And it's certainly something that comes up in every kind of news piece about robots, every interview. There's always that kind of, but what about, you know, do we need to be afraid? And Anything to do with AI, right? There's that anxiety about takeover and, and apocalypse. The perfect man, created by man, becomes man's worst enemy. Rossi! I remember doing a play at primary school that was about robots taking on all the tasks in the home and then all the robots rose up at the end yes. and got rid of the family. Yes, that... the robot uprising is a very familiar narrative. It's a trope that I think it really starts with RUR, Rossum's Universal Robots. So, I mean, that's where the term robot comes from. It's a Czech term. And... Um, <laughs> 
the robots got very confused. Yeah. Well, oh, because we're talking about <laughs> uprising. Yeah, giving you ideas. Great. Growing up in Western Europe, I've apparently taken on an anxiety about androids without really being aware of it. I suppose after all the books and films I've consumed over the years, it just seems obvious to me that robots are a potential threat. But in fact, the idea of the robot uprising is not universal. Other cultures have completely different attitudes towards them. In Japanese traditions, you do have different attitudes towards the possibility of the spiritual significance or the agency of non-living things. Sony produced a robotic dog called Aibo. I believe it's pronounced Aibo. Aibo. A-I-B-O. And it was retired. And then there was a certain point where repairs were no longer possible. So you had these defunct robots which functioned largely as dead robots to a lot of the people that owned them who were quite attached to them. And then it was reported in several news sources that there were these robotic funerals going on in Japanese temples. Like in one in particular, they had all these Ibo people would bring them and then they would do kind of have a service and they would send them off. But it's a reminder of how, you know, your cultural framework determines and um, shapes expectations and and it's very easy to be kind of dismissive from one perspective. What Amelia was trying to tell me before the small dog-like robot Miro started driving itself into the wall next to us and chittering wildly was that the term robot comes from a Czech play, R-U-R, Rossum's Universal Robots, which was first performed in 1921. It's about the creation of artificial beings that take on the drudgery of human work, replacing people in difficult or unpleasant jobs. Then the robots rise up and destroy humanity. But as the Miro robot continued to drive itself into the wall, one of the things that was really obvious was how far from taking over the world these robots actually are. What appear to be very basic tasks for a human or an animal are still so far beyond what any robot can do at this point. So I think a lot of the anxieties seem almost quaint for people who develop them. But even if we can rule out a robot uprising for now, some worries about robots as nurses and carers do remain. I think a lot of the anxieties are coming from bigger kind of philosophical questions. Who has the right to care is such a big one, right? It's not so much about, oh, them taking over, as is there something kind of fundamentally wrong with non-human slash non-living care. Here he comes, here he comes, greatest toy you've ever seen, and his name is Mr. Machine. He is real, he is real, and for you he is ideal, and his name is Mr. Machine. Kind of situations make you feel happy. I'm I'm very cheerful lady. I love children. I don't like to be alone. I like lovely music. Please tell me the title of the song, the artist or the genre you would like to listen to. The Pepper robot you've just heard speaking is part of a project exploring the use of robots in care homes. Professor Rena Papadopoulos aimed to develop robots that could assist older people in a culturally sensitive manner through their ability to respond to preferences, like taste in music. The primary care that our robot could give to the older people was companionship. A companionship meant many things, like 
talking and having conversations. I know that many children were evacuated from British cities to the countryside during the Second World War. I was wondering, do you remember that time? Yes. Please, tell me what was the most difficult thing that you and your family had to go through during the Second World War. Well, the most difficult thing was that we were a family of four, a husband and wife, and a little boy, me, and my younger sister. And my father, who was 29, was conscripted to go into the Royal Also, maybe linking the older person with their family members or with their doctors or with other carers and so forth, using the new technologies that we have. Also, the robot was able to give health promotion information and was able to remind the older people about their medication, to drink water, to do some exercises and kind of like encourage them like a, like a coach to do their exercises. Maybe if they wanted to watch a film, the robot would find the film that they requested and music, you know, it was very nice. Uh, the other thing w would be that it could raise the alarm mm. if um, the older person was not feeling well because it has a lot of sensors on its body. Do you ever pray or meditate? Yes. I used to do every day. I pray and I meditate. Sometimes I visit the churches I know that many Indian people meditate sitting on the floor in the corner lotus position, usually on a small mat or carpet, with eyes closed and back straight. Yes. For Rena and her project team, it was important that their robots could learn from the residents they spent time with. This helped the robots to better relate to their clients and to meet their health and care needs, as well as being able to adapt their responses to become more culturally aware. The other thing that we did in terms of the specific cultural feelings of person was to enable the robot to do an assessment. So I developed this model called the ADORE model. So A is for assess, the robot is making an assessment. So for example, if a woman, an Indian woman say, is sitting in her room and she is very quiet, the robot can notice this and say, you're very quiet today. Uh, that's his assessment. Then the next thing that it tries to do is to do. The D is for do. So the robot says, can I get you some nice Indian music to cheer you up? So that's a do. Then the R is for revise. So the woman says, no, I am quiet because I have a bad headache. So the robot then revises its offer and says, oh, you have a bad headache. I will get you some water. It can carry a glass of water, the robot. I can get you some water to take your headache tablet, right? So that's another action that it does. So the woman would say, thank you, that's very nice of you, or something like that. And then the E is for evaluate. The robot wants to evaluate whether what the actions 
its understanding and the actions that it took were appropriate. So the robot might say, I will ask you in half an hour if your headache is better. It's not just what a carer does that becomes important, but what they are like. Our attitudes towards robots when they're constructed for care purposes can tell us a lot about what we think nurses and carers should be, how they should look and how they should behave. Paro, the first robot I met at Amelia DeFalco's exhibition, was like a large soft toy with big eyes like a baby seal. Miro, the confused and interrupting little robot, was like a rabbit crossed with a dog. Some of the robots, however, are designed to be much more like humans. I have to admit I find them even more unsettling. One of the more humanoid types of robot in the exhibition is Zeno, which was designed to help develop emotional understanding in children with autism. So Zeno looks like a small person wearing a spacesuit with spiky brown hair and a humanoid face that kind of to me immediately makes me see the things that are missing that it doesn't have any eyelashes that uh, that you know obviously the face is very smooth there's no nostrils like it makes you focus in on the things that aren't there that you would expect a human to have and they've created what they call frubber this synthetic skin which is meant is a portmanteau of face and rubber. So, I mean, I think there you have a bit of that uncanny valley going on, right, that is a little off-putting because it's meant to be humanoid, but, of course, doesn't achieve it. So it's, yeah, it's a matter of taste. <laughs> but I think a lot of people find this one. It's basically like a child, a cross between a doll and a child, and it does facial expressions when when operated and those you know depending on your taste are are endearing or slightly (laughs) upsetting the robot used by rena papadopoulos's project is also a humanoid type it's a model called pepper and it's made by softbank robotics the pepper robot looks like a child and it has a slightly childish voice as well and this was uh, a result of a lot of research that the SoftBank robotic uh, people had done in order to uh, produce a robot that wasn't frightening. People didn't fear it. It was cute and it was kind of like, not a toy, but a very lovable robot. And you know, children are <laughs> the most lovable human beings, I suppose. Amelia DeFalco also had a Pepper robot at the launch of her exhibition about robot care. Pepper is approximately four feet tall, has a head that's kind of like an American football in shape, so it's actually more oval, the opposite way of our heads. Two arms and functioning fingers, so it, it can grasp. The design of its appearance also gives the impression that it's female. It has quite a nipped waist, and then it has a kind of what's been described by some of my colleagues as like a mermaid-like lower body, so it has no legs. It is mobile, but it rolls. So very humanoid, but um, it's interesting that one tends to get gendered female, I think largely because of this mermaid shape, you know, this kind of nipped in waist, this hourglass figure. And it often has a high, childlike, but slightly higher register voice. In fact, most of the humanoid care robots I've seen have been designed to look and sound like women. Perhaps this doesn't seem surprising, given that almost 90% of nurses in the UK are women. This isn't the same for every country, though. In Italy, almost a quarter of nurses are men, 
while in French-speaking African countries, the gender split is more like 50-50. The appearance of care robots can reflect assumptions about race as well as gender. Historically, the ideal carer has usually been presented as white, even as European countries aim to recruit nurses from around the globe. This image continues to affect the way robots are designed. My name is Anna Guevara, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Illinois Chicago in the Global Asian Studies program. Delving into the characteristics of robots has been a very interesting but also enraging <laughs> process for me. Many of the robots that I have been following are crafted with whiteness as the primary standard. And especially in the realm of care work robots, the robots that we're seeing are, you know, physically designed and racialized to have the image of whiteness as kind of the model and also and are very gendered. So most of the care work robots are female. And so I think we would see if we're looking at the range of robots that are now available in the market, they're mostly white and they're mostly uh, female. Yeah, and I, I um, remember reading that Erica, the Japanese care androids, was designed mm -hmm. to look like a beautiful woman, I quote, and that actually reminded me of a competition in a nursing journal that I came across in my research in the 1930s, mm -hmm. where they tried to find the typical nurse, and that was described as being a nurse who had professional capacity and human sympathy, but whose features suggested beauty of line. And once again, in that 1930s competition, all the nurses entering it were white women. Why do you think this female beauty is associated with care? And what, what has the appearance of robots as beautiful got to do with, with the care they provide? I had an opportunity to meet um, Hiroshi Ishiguro a couple of years ago, um, the maker of Erika. And that was one of the questions that I had asked him is that, you know, there, Erika seems to represent a particular kind of image, a particular kind of ideal. And his response was that Erica is the ideal beauty that evokes a kind of, you know, care that people will gravitate to. So if you're looking at Erica, you will feel a certain kind of warmth, you will feel a certain kind of bond, and that this is, for Ishiguro, this is a, a universal kind of ideals that, that he claims is the kind of care that we would want from a care worker. But that ideal has to do with, again, whiteness as a primary standard. And, you know, he said that he has gone through several algorithms to choose exactly, you know, how to basically create Erica. So Erica isn't just coming from one particular image of beauty, but she's kind of a composite. Good morning, ladies, and a very special good morning to all the nurses in Ward 4, Royal Hospital, Emden. I've got a message for you from one of your patients, Mrs. Quinn. I'll read it to you. As patients in Ward 4, we would like to convey our gratitude to all the nurses, kind and cheerful, who comfort us when we are tearful. For more than medicine and pills, their kind attention cures our ills. So please select a tune to raise their spirits and convey our praise. Well, I must say, I couldn't agree with them more. I think that nurses are absolutely marvellous. Are you listening in Ward 4? You clever old thing, so that's what you've been hatching up. 
We mean it all, dear. Every word of it. The image of the ideal nurse has changed over time. Unlike the kindly, cheerful nurses in this film clip from 1962, the winner of that 1939 ideal nurse competition I mentioned to Anna has a very stern face. This shows that human sympathy meant something a little different to carers in the 1930s than it would today. Back then, nurses were constantly warned to avoid frothy sentimentality. Yet surprisingly few people have written about the emotional components of care, instead focusing on the practical and clinical tasks that nurses perform. In the late 1980s, nurse and sociologist Pam Smith decided to address that gap by explicitly focusing on the emotional labour of nursing. The first time I experienced emotional labour was when I was doing my PhD, which was about caring and learning. How do student nurses learn to care? I always felt and knew myself it was a very emotional experience, but didn't have a particular language. And then I was interviewing a third-year student who was telling me about how it was to learn about caring and about the challenges that it wasn't about the actual things that she did, like caring for, the, for people who were dying or in pain, but it was the systems that didn't always support her. I just got a sense from talking to her of the sheer labour that was involved in caring in a system that sometimes felt like an obstacle. I think it was then that I first became aware through my own feeling of the sense of nursing work and caring work being emotional labor. So that was my first realization, if you like, of emotional labor as an idea. The idea of emotional labor was introduced in 1983 in sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild's book, The Managed Heart. She emphasized that emotional work was skilled and made a political point about the way the gendering of the service industry had devalued emotional labor. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard. Once you have located your seat, we ask you that you please step out of the aisle so the passengers behind you can pass you. This will expedite our boarding process. Hochschild discovered that flight attendants in the 1970s received extensive training in how to mask their feelings when dealing with difficult customers. If you need assistance, please contact the flight attendant. The flight attendants found this emotional labour more obvious and more taxing when the gap between what they were really feeling, angry, irritated or fed up, and what they were supposed to be feeling, happy, caring or warm, was at its widest. Unlike 1970s flight attendants, nurses have rarely received explicit training in managing their emotions. Caring for a sick or dying person 
might seem more straightforward if we believe the historical cliché that women are natural carers. If caring is just what women naturally do, then why would they need to be paid well or even trained? Amelia DeFalco. In basic terms, there are two parts to care, right? There's the doing part and there's the feeling part. And when those two get divided, which they do all the time, and that's what a lot of ethics of care philosophy is about, is about kind of um, interrogating how that division happens and how certain people get tasked with doing and certain people get tasked with feeling. Robots make that split very explicit. We see that there are certain machines that get tasked with very specific parts of care, and so that forces us to reflect on what care means. And it's a reminder, this idea that robots really, of course, fundamentally are incapable of the emotional element. And so that leads us to questions about can we have care that is really just an action, just a doing, right, that has no kind of emotional component And some people would say, yes, absolutely, and that already happens all the time, and that to expect our caregivers to always have that emotional element and that emotional connection with the people that they're caring for is, if not unreasonable, then in fact impossible, right, because of the incredible workload and the demands on caregivers, um, especially like human nurses and all kinds of other personal support workers. But I think robots really help us think about care. That's part of the reason I'm really interested in them. It's not that I have strong feelings, to be honest, about whether they're good or bad. If flight attendants can be trained to mask or exhibit certain emotions to provide good customer care, and if robots are incapable of experiencing emotion at all, where does this leave the emotional labour of nursing? Do emotions need to be genuinely felt to provide good care? Or can they simply be performed? Professor Rena Papadopoulos. Obviously, the best thing is if compassion is a virtue, you have to be genuine. You have to be a genuine carer, a genuine friend. This is really important and this is healthy. People who pretend a lot, that is toxic. Now, the robot, of course, does not have feelings as such because it's a machine. It fakes or pretends to have feelings, and I think they can do that very well. Some humans pretend that they are compassionate or that they are interested or they empathise with another human. But that is fake a lot of the times. is not real either. So it's what the robot does, but the robot will be consistent. The humans won't be. I think that's one of the big cases that's made by proponents of care robots is that, you know, a robot that fakes a positive emotion is far better than a disgruntled, angry, overworked caregiver who can actually cause harm even if they're, you know, doing the jobs adequately but have animosity and for good lots of good reasons to do with how poorly they're treated and underpaid they are. The idea that nurses need to show emotions is a relatively recent one. The 1939 nurse had a restrained human sympathy, which was controlled and unsentimental. Before that, even during the extremes of the First World War, it's rare to find much attention paid to the emotions exhibited by nurses. Amanda Gwynup is a PhD candidate at the University of Huddersfield, 
researching the post-war lives of First World War nurses who had experienced psychological breakdowns that left them unable to work. Professional nurses were not judged on their emotional displays. During the confidential reports during the war, which were done by the matrons or sometimes the medical officer in charge, and they were done every six months to a year, depending on which branch of service and also everyone's time. It was quite time-constrained. They were usually assessed on their efficiency, their reliability, their morality, their judgment, and their ability to get along with the rest of the staff. Even though it's not discussed in their confidential work reports or any of that sort of stuff, you had to be able to hide it because you're dealing with really gruesome injuries and you're under a lot of stress and you can't show the injured soldier how disturbing you might find their injury or how tired you are or how upset you are or stressed in general and if something's not going right you can't just yell out and let everyone know that you're displeased with the situation you had to hold it. Even though emotional labour is a late 20th century idea Amanda recognises the huge toll nursing in such demanding circumstances took on the women whose lives she investigates. Subjectively, when I read about their symptoms or if they mention anything in the pension records about what may have caused their psychological breakdowns, I always see it as just a constant onslaught of stress and worry and concern for themselves and those around them that they then honestly hide or push away until you know, it can't be withheld anymore and then the walls break down and they, they end up breaking down themselves. I think that nurses during the war and probably always throughout history, really, even, you know, even nurses today, they give a lot of themselves to the patients and it's exhausting. In modern healthcare, this type of emotional exhaustion is often referred to as burnout. In 2019, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, 44% of NHS nurses and midwives in England reported in a staff survey that they'd been unwell as a result of work-related stress in the previous 12 months. Nearly a quarter were looking for work outside the NHS. The pandemic has only increased these issues. When healthcare staff are overworked, stressed and unhappy, might robots be able to support them to provide more equitable care? I think a robot will be always culturally competent and compassionate if it has been programmed to be so. It can't be nice one day and another day is horrible to the patients. There is a consistency with a robot if it is appropriately programmed. But Anna Guevara remains concerned about the impact of algorithmic bias. Robots aren't neutral. They've been programmed by humans and can carry the programmer's own biases. For example, some roboticists have claimed that a humanoid robot called Grace can detect human emotions and respond appropriately. But if Grace is programmed in ways that are based on particular biases that that engineer had in constructing grace, then she may not get the nuances of the emotions being projected by 
by you or me. So I might be sad, but maybe that's not actually the the emotion that I'm feeling, but it's it's what's fitting in the the kind of code that grace is supposed to detect. That's a question for me, you know, the kind of interactions that these care work robots are able to have, but also the assumptions that are built into how they interpret the emotions that they're receiving. And so let's say if an engineer has a particular perception about a certain individual that is, you know, again, based on a particular worldview or bias, that probably will get encoded in some ways in how that care work robot responds. So if I'm a, for example, if the robot reads me as an Asian woman, then it might have assumptions about my behavior as being subservient, someone who is from East Asia only in particular, and then will read my name that says Anna Guevara and assume that I'm Mexican rather than Filipino because it's been encoded to kind of have a set of rules to to follow and not able to really interpret, you know, complexities in human, I mean, human identities, but also just complexities in our addiction or our ability to engage socially. These biases emerge from cultural expectations, which shift across time and place. Understanding the history of gendered stereotypes in care is central to recognising and managing them. Pam Smith. It's about how caring is valued and how it's seen as what nurses do. And it's what Women do anyway. Anybody can do it. A parent does it. Looking after your older relative, you do it. Therefore, I think there's a tension between the value given to care work. Caring isn't natural. It's very complex. But maybe it's a natural human inclination when the conditions are good. We want to care. We want to make people feel better. We don't want them to die. COVID really raised its head about the importance of caring in a very difficult situation. I've met care robots and I've talked to experts in the field. I've discovered that robot nurses are very limited in their functioning, that they often break down and that their behaviour is a product of the biases and assumptions of their creators. So I'm still not sure about the answer to the big question hanging over this. Can robots care? Amelia DeFalco. I mean, my experience with studying this material is just that I have very mixed feelings coming out of it. Speaking of feelings, you know, having had people in my family with dementia, you know, I I find it very hard to muster the same kind of really strong skepticism that some people like Sherry Turkle has is very adamantly opposed to um, robots like Pero because it's deceptive and she thinks that the people who are using it think they're engaging with a real living entity you know uh, um, they think it's alive and they think they can share with that robot in a way that the robot is absorbing what they're sharing and from my point of view I think kind of claims of authenticity around emotions, especially dealing with dementia, become very difficult to pinpoint. And the idea that there can be, you know, a kind of immediate calming emotional benefit in the moment someone who's really distressed to me seems like a very valuable thing. 
I don't think it is possible for robots to care. <laughs> I know many will disagree with me, but I think if we think of care work as something that is reciprocal and something that involves a kind of engagement, deep engagement with the person receiving the care and the person delivering the care, I do not think that a machine can ever mimic that kind of um, reciprocity. The robot will never replace a human, but it can be part of a team and it can be part of the services that are being provided. There are a lot of routines in caring, in nursing or caring for older people that are so routine uh, the humans get a bit, you know, uh, they may get a bit fed up if they have to do observations, vital signs every three hours for three days. So if they have a robot, then that allows them to to sit with a patient. And, you know, so many people, especially in COVID, had nobody by their side, nobody to talk to them, nobody to hold their hand when they were taking their last breath. So um, the robot uh, could be doing that. Okay, it's not a human being, but in our experiences, what robot did was very much appreciated. So, if we have to learn to live with robot nurses, how do we feel about that? I was definitely unsettled by my encounters with Paro, Miro and Zeno at the Thackeray Museum. An uncertainty that was eased by the knowledge that the abilities of these care robots were very limited indeed. But from speaking with Amelia and Renna, I realised they could still perform a function. A support for those living with dementia, say, that might be a constant reassuring presence. Something it's just not possible for tired and overworked human carers to provide. Yet I was also warned by Anna's reminder that robots are not neutral. Programmed by humans, they hold some of the same biases that we find in our societies. Care robots risk reinforcing the historical stereotype that nurses are white and female, that emotional labour is not a skill. But robots might even require training, just as humans do, to behave in a culturally aware fashion. As was the case with my partner's robot surgery, care robots require humans in order to function. For better or for worse, I don't think they're going to replace the messy complexity of human care anytime soon. That was Living with Feeling. It was presented by Sarah Cheney and produced by Natalie Steed. We're grateful to the Wellcome Trust for their generosity in making the series possible. To hear more episodes, subscribe to Living with Feeling on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And find out more about our work by visiting the Emotions Lab website. Thank you for listening.